All right, welcome to the Back to Ones podcast. I'm sitting here with Paul Armstrong in his impressive apartment filled with all sorts of books and film paraphernalia and collections from world traveling. And uh, yeah, sitting with Paul, a well-known independent producer in uh, Vancouver, probably one of the best known. Hello, Paul. I wouldn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I can only, you know, surmise that from other people's opinions, not my own. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. Just in the the thick of, you know, indie world launching. mm -hmm, Gearing up for Crazy Eights, which is starting, uh, yeah, officially in a few days. Yeah, September 19th, we do the online registration leading up to the 20th year of Crazy Eights. Brilliant. Um, I'm sure that most people probably know what Crazy Eights is about. For those who do not know, uh, brief explanation of uh, what Crazy Eights is and what it does. Crazy Eights is an eight-day filmmaking challenge. People are given cash and all sorts of in-kind sponsorship to make a short film in just eight days, and it screens for the biggest audience in Vancouver of the year. Over 1,800 people come out to the gala screening and big party afterwards, and then they play at festivals all around the world. We've had lots of great success stories coming out of it, launching people's careers. We get hundreds of applications, narrowing it down to the final six that get made. And, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to 20 years. It was started 20 years ago by the Directors Guild of Canada, and now it's run by the nonprofit Crazy Eights Film Society. And uh, and uh, it was great having you involved with it for a couple of years there, too. Thanks, Paul. How long were you involved? After this you- is my sixth year now, yeah. Yeah. But I actually pitched for Crazy Eights in 2005. Really? What did yeah. you pitch? Uh, it was a short film uh, that was set in a restaurant with a, a singing uh, waitress. Yeah, oh. but we ended up still making the film, which is what happens a lot with Crazy Eights. It spurs people on to make their film. If they get selected by Crazy Eights, people are still so far along the road of uh, packaging it that they're determined to make it, and that's what we did as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think is um, the most challenging step for somebody who, who does make it into Crazy Eights? Uh, well, of course, it's time and money and <laughs> resources as usual with any film but in some ways that can make things easier because they don't have to uh so much of it is structured they don't have to set the dates the dates already set uh crew naturally gravitate towards when you do crazy eight's film because of the prestige and we do give them some money and lots of resources and so uh the challenges are more just uh i think the uh escalation of production values and competition between uh, the filmmakers to try to make as good a film as they can just keeps escalating every year. So with the amount of time that they have, which is limited eight days and the resources, then uh, I think it's just to make the best film they can. But so far they've been pulling it off. We've made 109 films in 20 years and not one has ever failed. And Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a good record. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, pretty impressive. I guess there's just zero chance of uh, procrastination. Yeah, there's no, no failure is not an option. <laughs> yeah, no, that's part of Crazy Eights. We guide them all along the way with mentorship and workshops, and uh, we executive produce the films, so we just make sure that nothing can go wrong. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's always some things to go wrong, and but oh, we're all yeah. collectively trying to put out those fires as a group. It's still a wild mm-hmm. ride. What are oh, you, yeah. some of your favorite moments you can share of things that went wrong that uh, turned out to go right? Well, I mean, with any creative enterprise, there's always creative differences. So that comes up every year. Some some of the teams have some different views on how the film should get made internally. 
So, uh, but in the end, we often help them get through that. Well, we always help them get through that and make great films. Uh, we don't, yeah, we make sure that any resolution with the within the film teams is, is resolved and because the film comes first in the end we have to make sure that we make and they make the best film that they can and we can so uh we make sure that uh yeah we're we're acting as hr people as well on these films so yeah it's such an intense time period that people's tempers can sometimes um get a little bit a uh, little bit anxious as as they're trying to make this great film but they might have different views so mm-hmm, but for sure. we all get through it so each year the number goes up and up, and now it's over 200 people la- submitted last year. Yeah, 227 um, yeah. last year. Wow, and only six of those get picked. Yeah. Preparing to pitch your film and put it out there to the world to anybody is kind of a nerve-wracking thing. Um, but what what in your mind is like the ideal preparation that somebody would go through before you know, signing up and, and doing a video pitch to, to give them the best possible chance of... Uh, really portraying how they want uh, why their film is, is a good one to be picked I'd say the key thing for preparing for a pitch is story making sure that the person has their story down from beginning middle and then the judges are really strong as they should be on story because that's what's going to make the best film along with the team and the resources we give them but it starts with the story so just making sure that you've got a um, something that hasn't been told before maybe something that's unique maybe sometimes if it's a story that's personal to you, maybe that can bring out more expression in your story than something more generic. And so I'd say story is the key thing. And uh, and then also assembling a team that has some, a mixture of experience, but also uh, we also want to see some newcomers too. So it's assembling your team so that it's, uh, it's uh, something that is going to be um, something that the judges want to support as well and give them confidence that the film can get made, knowing that uh, that there is a strong team behind it. And then also thinking about any, if there's any issues with any of the, the films, if it's heavy on uh, graphics or stunts or something, that the person has thought about any problem areas as well and try to resolve those. Uh, so I think those are the main main things they should prepare for. But story is definitely the, the first thing to think about. Nice. I like how, I mean, it's it comes around every year and everybody kind of gets ready, gets, mm-hmm. you know, few months in advance starts thinking about oh what could I what could I make what could I do this year um, and it's definitely always been something to motivate young filmmakers to to get started and as you said um, usually even if, if you don't get in there's that feeling of, of momentum which can carry you forward to to actually making your film anyway um, so I think that's a really nice thing that Crazy Aids contributes this this kind of creative atmosphere um, to the Vancouver Indie Film World, which is growing in leaps and bounds in, in many ways, I think, these days. You've been around since the very beginning. Um, almost the very beginning. Well, almost the very <laughs> Not beginning. Not that old. Getting there, but... <laughs> of, uh, yeah, the Vancouver film kind of exploding. And what's that been like to kind of see that arc from then into now? Well, uh, I was around so much so from the beginning that when I actually started... Uh, what happened was uh, I was working at the Vancouver Film School and someone came into my office and he ran a, uh, a bar in Kitsilano and he wanted to show short films at it. And he came in and said, I want to show indie films in uh, in my bar. And I thought he meant uh, East Indian films. <laughs> this It was so long ago that indie film wasn't really... <laughs> even I didn't know what indie film was at that point. <laughs> so uh, that was in the mid-90s. 
the scene in Vancouver really, uh, the indie scene, there was a first wave back in the 60s with a lot of the students at UBC and uh, and then again again with UBC they sort of kicked it off again in the early 90s um, with Lynn Stopkwich with Kissed and uh, Bruce Sweeney with his films uh, there was a really strong program at UBC in the early 90s and that, that was sort of the next wave of indie filmmaking which uh, grew out of I'd say the first film that I really knew as being an indie film was in the late 80s in 89 Sex, Lies and Videotape that was like heralded as sort of the first film that uh, broke as an indie film at Sundance and then after that in the 90s then the floodgates started to open and then of course Tarantino put indie film on the map although it wasn't 100% indie of course but the spirit of indie was carried by him and then that just trickled down to film students and and then eventually uh, a whole new uh, bandwagon of filmmakers wanting to get on this indie train and it, it took off in the the mid 90s and that's when I started getting involved in film I was away at university until 95 and then I started to uh, uh, work in film then so I've seen it almost from the beginning and uh, it was around then I also started my film screening so as I said starting with student films and then I decided to actually start showing indie films non-student films as well uh, so I started something called indie film night in uh, 96 and then that eventually led to the celluloid social club in 97 and i've been running that ever since for 21 years now so i've seen all the all the waves and there have been waves over the years every couple of years there's a, a resurgence of film in vancouver and then it fades away again and comes back it's, it's always there but there's been been tidal waves and right now we're in one of those tidal waves but Three or four years ago, there was a well, five years ago now, there was the uh, Save BC film movement. There was a yeah a drop off then, but I've seen those going all the way back to the uh, to the mid nineties. So, but this this current one is lasting longer, I think, and so it's um, it's had great effects, but also it tends to draw a lot of people from the indie world maybe back into that more commercial uh, production world. And so I just know a lot of uh, great filmmakers that maybe would be doing their own work, but they're drawn to the to that uh, surge of uh, production work here. There's nothing wrong with that, but as long as they remember that they're also, maybe that they also have those film dreams as well to make their own films, so as long as they don't forget about those. But I've, I've seen that, that process happening over the last, well, 23 years now. Mm-hmm. There's... um. Yeah, I've had a lot of people talk to me and say, wow, they're just, especially on the creative side, writers, directors, actors, there's definitely, it feels like there's a big divide sometimes between that Vancouver indie community and then the the more commercial production community. They really do feel kind of separate. Do you think that's a good thing? Do you wish they'd merge a little more? Um, Why do you think think it's just a? I think it's an individual thing. Some people... Uh, they do it as just a job, and for them, it's making money. And so, if that's what they're in it for, there's nothing wrong with that. But then there's those other people that are uh, maybe on the more well. I mean, everyone's creative in film. Everyone's doing something that's creative, for the most part. But some people want to be the initiators of those film projects, the writers, directors, producers. So a lot of them do cross over between the more commercial production production side and the indie side. So there is a lot of crossover, and even even with crew, like for instance, when we do the Crazy Eights films, a lot of the commercial crew they often do work on the crazy eights films because uh, they might get tired of doing the same series for seven years five days a week and they want to want to uh, express their their film creativity through uh, something else and so 
there is crossover there, but so I'd say there's three groups. There's the uh, people that only stay in the indie world, like myself. I've only worked on pretty much indie shows, uh, and then there's people that only do the the production uh, service work, and then there's people that go back and forth between them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's always going to be like that, and maybe it needs to be like that because there needs to be enough people working in that service industry to to keep the industry working here, and there needs to be people in the indie scene here because we need creative expression for the people that just want to work in that world and then there's people that that want to do both and need to do both because one uh, one thing is of course the production uh, service work does pay well and so a lot of filmmakers need to do some of that but then they can go do their indie projects with that money and time that they buy from that so um, I think the only the only thing that maybe is uh, is um, is I don't want to say sad but is when people get sucked 100% into the production world just because of the money and then they forget about maybe their filmmaking dreams that they had earlier. So that's the danger of of getting um, involved in that and then losing sight of why you, eventually, like why you originally got into film, which is maybe to make your own feature film, but then the service side can draw you into such an extent that you, you, you stay there. Uh, there's nothing wrong if that's what you want, but I know a lot of filmmakers often want to make their own films as well, so as long as they keep that dream alive as well. Yeah, no, I know it's it's hard because I mean it's tempting to to work in a in a field that you love and still get paid you know uh, enough to live on and hopefully enough to fund your next project um, to do that. And it's a shame that there's not more funding opportunities for Canadian indie film that mm. that more people know about and and can use because I think I mean definitely um, there's a lot of indie stuff like I've seen a lot of. Us, Australian indie stuff and British indie stuff that that then kind of keeps moving and gets funding and gets remade with more of a budget and I find that that seems so far away sometimes uh, as a Canadian filmmaker to to make something feeling like it's going to be distinctive enough and there's going to be somebody out there who wants to to put money into it and do it well I'm thinking maybe uh, maybe because we live so close to the U.S. people are trying to make films that are not U.S. like different, whereas in Australia and those other countries, they're uh, they're on the same proximity to the U.S. and so they have a bit more. Uh, uh, they can express themselves a bit more without having to do something contra to U.S. style productions. So that might be part of it. It's just also a sensibility thing as well, um, because maybe they have such a small market there, they have to cater things that will sell abroad because their audiences are are smaller there. Of course, it's smaller in Canada as well, but I guess we have so much uh, U.S. content here that might affect it too. Um, But uh, I think it comes down to sensibility, and that's often hard to determine what causes that. But I definitely think our uh, proximity to the U.S. culture plays a role in shaping the type of productions we do, Mm -hmm. which is maybe trying to be more uh, or less commercial. Yeah. You probably watch more can, more independent film than anybody I know, um, Canadian independent film specifically. If you were to try to sum up the the kind of attitude, the the ambiance that surrounds the quintessential Canadian indie film, how would you describe it? Well, I'd say it's uh, somewhat these days non-narrative. So uh, this is a current trend. It's, it's pretty much uh, in other countries as well, but definitely strong right now in Canada is the slow cinema movement. So it's sort of more poetic, less narrative-based, more open-ended storylines without conclusive endings. Um, 
slow-paced, lingering camera shots. So I think all those things for a long time have been what Canadian cinema seems to seems to uh, be comprised of, and that style is now, I think, if you look at film festivals, a lot of the films are in that that style. But that style is also abroad as well, but I think it's been a Canadian style for a long time now, and I think it's it's now sort of the dominant one. Mm-hmm. Do you um, think it's a strong style for us to, to really embrace? Or I mean, I know that I personally have a bias to these these tight storylines that all kind mm-hmm. of come to the end and there's a, they put a pin in like every little every mm-hmm. little thing wraps up you know i love uh i love uh, uh snatch guy Ritchie did uh mm-hmm. that really nice tight and everything comes together in the end really well um tarantino wraps things up so well in his films and uh both very heavily narrative based films but uh do you feel that we're losing anything i guess by doing you know slightly more abstract uh, work in storylines and stuff. Well, I guess as long as you're not compromising what you're trying to say in the story by wrapping it up too neatly. So maybe uh, if there is a, a question that can't be answered, then maybe expressing that in the film rather than uh, wrapping it up in a way that maybe is forced. So uh, I think it starts with what you're trying to say in the film. It uh, starts with sort of what your purpose in making the film is from starting with an artistic uh, impulse all the way to what your target audience is. So if you're trying to get into these film festivals, then maybe that other style, the open-ended, more uh, slow cinema style, is the the one to adopt. But if uh, I think it's, so it's a combination of what your own sensibility is and what you're trying to say in the film that will determine uh, the medium that, or the style of the film that it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to how many films you watch... What are some of the uh, ones that you've seen lately that you'd say, go watch these films? If you were going to just watch a handful of Canadian indie films, which ones would you say are your latest top picks? Um, well, I have to say I'm not as on top of Canadian features as I used to be. I used to work with First Weekend Club, producing their uh, events every month. And so we were screening a new Canadian feature every, every month. So I really had a handle on all the Canadian features at that time. Uh, but less and less so lately. I've been so focused with Crazy Eights and short films that I've been so caught up in uh, making our own content that I feel like I've lost a little bit of the radar of, of what's out there, um, which is, yeah. But there's a lot of great film festivals coming up that I'm going to go back and, and see what's what's uh, coming up. But there's a lot of great Canadian films coming out again locally here, a lot of... Uh, Bruce Sweeney has Kingsway. He's one of Vancouver's leading filmmakers. One of his films even opened TIFF in, uh, I think it was 2001. Uh, so he's got a film called Kingsway that just premiered at uh, TIFF and will be playing at VIF. Um, Zach Lepofsky, who's one of the success stories, one of the great success stories, everyone's success story from Crazy Eights, but he's he's one that lately uh, got on the radar because he just made his first indie feature called Freaks and he just uh, premiered at TIFF and sold it there. Uh, to a distributor for U.S. theatrical release. So that one's Canadian, but it has U.S. Uh, appeal. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of Canadian features, um, I know that it's harder and harder these days to get them funded, so it feels like there's less and less being made in Vancouver. A lot of the funding comes out of Ontario. So uh, I feel like that is drying up a little bit. Uh, people are really, I think there's been a big resurgence in web series, a lot of people are putting their energy into web series. 
Um, another big platform that's helping filmmakers here is uh, Tell a Story Hive. So they've been helping hundreds of filmmakers get their films made. So I think if people are also looking for what's out there, they should look at Story Hive. And most of those are short form content. Uh, so I think a lot of people are, are turning towards that. And it's just getting harder and harder to uh, fund bigger uh, feature films. People are doing them more just on their own on their own uh, on their own dime. Like you know someone that just shot their own feature and he, he wrote, produced, directed, shot, uh, wrote it, directed, produced, shot, yeah. Uh, all one person, one crew and just a couple actors. So that's another way that people are moving towards as well is uh, it's just one man band or one man woman. One woman band, mm -hmm. uh, doing it all yourself too, um, if they can't get the funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, you keep an eye on a lot of these these pe especially through Crazy Eights. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. who's kind of up and coming right now seems to filter through the the Crazy Eights selection process at some point or another. So I feel like that's a nice way you get to kind of keep on your radar who's doing what and how mm -hmm. how well they're doing. Um, kind of being able to watch people's trajectory happen that way. What do you kind of absorb from that as to what what works for them what's what would your advice be to a, a beginning filmmaker who's looking at uh at trying to have as successful a trajectory into making films as possible i think just being very uh dedicated and serious all along the way all the way from the packaging the original pitch process through paying attention to the craft of the film just making sure it's high production value uh, and then also the way that you're marketing it, because having about building up social media. So I, I think it's, uh, I think the days of just being like a 90s type slacker filmmaker are gone. I think you have to be more uh, more proactive these days. Uh, so I know that just seeing people that are that put a lot of effort into every stage of the, the process from slick production uh, pitch package to attention to detail in every way in making the film, lots of pre-planning, so whether it's storyboards or uh, just being as meticulous as you can in planning out the filmmaking and then assembling as, as good a team as you can get with uh, people's experiences you can get in whether it's DPs or art directors and editors and so on. And then, uh, and then getting it out there, having a strategy for getting the film mm -hmm. distributed. Yeah. I know that Vancouver's like especially lately started really the independent filmmakers are making beautiful films I mean every year crazy mm -hmm. films get more and more gorgeous in in their just lighting design cinematography um for the filmmaker starting out who's trying to fund it by themselves the equipment can be intimidating when it comes to the pricing um there were, I mean, a lot of films uh, done a few years ago, like Tangerine shot on an iPhone and uh, and people basically using what equipment was available to them. Do you find that that's still kind of a trend happening in Vancouver? Do you think that people are, are still ascribing the seriousness to those films kind of made on a shoestring budget, but with a lot of care, I guess? Well, I think people expect things that look very professionally but still indie so I think if people can try to use their their resources to try to get as good a camera and gear as they can get uh, I think that's important on the other hand if it's a really strong story and they just can't do that then it's, and it's a story that needs to be told then I think you can still get away with it on those other 
platforms, but maybe your film won't carry as far. It might not get into the festivals or play on TV. or So I think you should definitely not think that your story's going to be better just because you have less production value. I think uh, they can go together. So I don't think you should sacrifice one for the other. I think you need a really strong story and as good a production value as you can get. But on the other hand, if you can't get access to that, those great resources that, that maybe Alexa camera or red camera and you still need to tell the story, I think you should still tell it because uh, it'll still give you the uh, the practice and experience of, of filmmaking that you can use when you add the resources for a, for a higher budget film. So I think, I don't think uh, if, if you have something you have to say, then I don't think, I don't think uh, there should be obstacles such as, you know, not having the money to, to shoot um, as good as qualities you can get should stop you. I was watching a film, uh, I've been watching a few films that are specifically the first films done by notable directors, and, and the one that pops to mind is the one I watched the other night, Reservoir Dogs uh, by Tarantino, and looking at that as somebody's first feature film, the bar is so high, and I'm wondering, from a producer's point of view, say you, you have an in- indie filmmaker, they make their first feature, and it's, it's a train wreck. Um, how much of a strike against them is that, that they are not hitting it out of their park on their first one? Are you going to chalk that up to practice? Are you going to say, well, by the time you're making a feature, you should have a handle on this? What does that tell you and how are you going to hold that against them? Yeah, I think people should uh, be ready for their feature. And that's the great thing about shorts. It's a way to to, uh, practice and cut your teeth and get the team that you need and your experience before you do that first feature because, yeah, it's hard to go back again after doing it. I mean, there can be features that are done well but don't uh, maybe do well at the box office or win awards, but as long as there's integrity to it and it's got enough uh, minimum production value and uh, it looks like you've put in the effort and haven't haven't slacked off, then I don't think that'll count against you if it doesn't find an audience. But as long as you've done as much as you can to make it as good as you can, I think... uh, I think that that'll count, but obviously, uh, for a feature, you want to put your because often if you do a bad feature, then it's going to be harder to get the second feature funded. Obviously, so um, it's definitely like rungs in the ladder. You definitely want to have that first feature as strong as you can make it. And for Reservoir Dogs, of course, it was an indie feature, but he also had more resources than most uh, most indie filmmakers. He had um, he had some stars. He had. Well, I don't know what studio money at the time, but he had more funding, I'm sure, than most filmmakers. And one funny thing about Reservoir Dogs is when I was living in England, it was actually banned there. When I was at university in England, oh, really? we weren't able to watch it until towards the end of the time I was staying there because it was it was actually banned, which is actually one reason it became so popular is because of the right. the ban. So I guess that's one little thing. If you get your film banned, then <laughs> there might, you go. Yeah. Pro tips from Paul Armstrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm wondering now, what's kind of next for you? Because I know you're still with Crazy Eights this year. Are you sticking with Crazy Eights? Are you, what's next for Paul? Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm still on board with Crazy Eights, although we've split my role into two. There's this uh, other um, producer that's come on board, Erin Mazulam, who was with StoryHive actually for a couple of years, helped get that going. So now she's joined Crazy Eights as uh, a co-executive director along with me. She's the head of... Uh, programming she'll be doing more of the hands-on with the, the teams and getting their films made and i'm focusing more on the uh, distribution side of it so trying to get the films out there more 
into the world. Um, I'm also helping with fundraising and so on of the of the society. So she'll be more hands-on for programming, but I'm still going to be involved as well as that, of course. And I'm still doing the Celluloid Social Club. I'm still, I've been doing that for 21 years now, so I can't see myself stopping that anytime soon. I'd, I'd like to hand it off to someone someday, if there's anyone out there that wants to <laughs> maybe help out. I'm eventually hoping to hand it off. Um, and then I continue to also produce feature films as well. So I also, uh, the last film I did was Lawrence and Holloman, uh, six years ago. Uh, and then since then I've been doing some CBC documentary channel documentaries. So outside of short film, I also produce feature films. I've produced, uh, five or six feature films now as well. Um, and then I also do various commercial other projects and I, I, teach as well i produce uh, teach for in focus film school and rain dance producing courses and um and then i'm actually starting to work on my own projects that i'm developing as well and i've also been uh talking to producers in china about filming co-productions between china and canada because actually for the past two years i filmed in china i filmed nine short documentaries in china through a program there so i've been involved in uh yeah filming in china i want to do more of that as well Awesome. For, uh, for young producers in, in, well, I guess anywhere, uh, getting involved in indie film, what's your biggest advice for somebody setting out to kind of have, uh, have a, a career path that is a fulfilling career path in producing? Uh, for producing, well, there's, there's courses out there that you can take. Uh, so I think that's one thing. Also, shadowing a producer, so uh, finding a mentor finding someone you could shadow, gain the experience uh, directly, not just in the classroom, but it's good to have a classroom basis, but then you need the practical experience. So finding a producer that you can be an assistant to and uh, and work with that way, that's important too. But ultimately it's just producing, is just producing. I uh, I didn't actually train myself to be, I never, um, I never took a course and I took a lot of courses and other things, but not producing. It was just more on the job training so I think a lot of producing is is gaining experience in all sorts of different areas of filmmaking and then uh, and then just doing it so um, I, when I started out in film I, I knew I wanted to be a producer but I also wanted to try a lot of other things just to gain experience in them so uh, that's important to know a lot of the different departments and you know what you're going to be overseeing and uh, and then um, and then just diving in and starting to to do it I, I I was telling people I was a producer before I actually produced something. They, they were asking, what have you produced? And I said, well, in development. You can always <laughs> <laughs> say something's in development. Um, and so uh, I think, yeah, gaining some classroom knowledge classroom knowledge if you can, and then finding a mentor, and then just, just going out and, and producing. Nice. Uh, probably the key steps. Bite the bullet yeah. and just yeah. jump right in, eh? Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for sitting down and chatting with us. Um, I know you probably have a couple of final dates and times you want to throw out for Crazy 8 stuff, so I'll let you do that now. All right. So, yeah, Crazy 8's uh, online registration starts September 19th and goes till October 30th. October 14th at the Rio Theater, we have our online, or sorry, our uh, in-person registration session where the fee is cheaper and you can hear from past Crazy 8's alumni and current judges all about what Crazy 8's is all about. And then uh, video pitches are due November 3rd, and pitches are at the end of November. We film in February, and the gala is February 23rd. Very exciting. Yeah, come on down to the Rio. I'm probably going to mm -hmm. poke my nose in. And, uh, yeah, everybody goes down there. It's just big meeting of the Vancouver Indy family. So if mm -hmm. you are That's the other key thing is networking, just mm -hmm. showing up at these things. That's where you form your teams and, 
and uh, get inspired. And that's a big thing about anything to do with the film industry is just showing up mm-hmm. and networking. Getting inspired. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, heading home and taking that with mm-hmm. you and uh, putting something down on yeah. a piece of paper. Yeah, putting in the hard work. Mm-hmm. People forget about that part of it. It's a huge part of film making is people know when they're when they're starting to do it. It's it's intense. Mm-hmm. Hurts a little. Yeah, but it, <laughs> it's worth it in the end. Oh, always, mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, thank you so much for sitting down yeah. and, uh, and chatting with us. And uh, Paul Armstrong, everybody. And you will be able to see him shortly. He's premiering in a short film that I just ah, uh, ah, ah. put together and uh, directed in. And uh, he's making not his film debut, but uh, this is a pretty remarkable cameo. So tune into that probably mid-October, hopefully. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining us, Paul. Bye. Bye.